Welcome. I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this segment of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is Jane Botkin, a fellow member of the Western Writers of America, who is renowned for scouring the West for firsthand sources from family diaries, libraries, and museums in order to bring out compelling stories of Wild West figures. Her own history is rife with images torn from the Western frontier. One of her great-grandfathers was a Dalton family physician, a relationship he continued in Oklahoma with the Doolin-Dalton gang when they came to him to patch up Bill Doolin after he was injured. One of her great-grandmothers was most likely a soiled dove plying her trade in Western mining camps, a story she will hopefully fill in for us. Her uncle Frank Little, the subject of her first book, was a labor organizer lynched in 1917 in Butte, Montana. And then things get a little genealogically intense. Her grandson's three times great-grandfather on the side of her Wyoming daughter-in-law was Hank Bodecker, one of the lawmen who escorted Butch Cassidy to Laramie to be incarcerated. It might be complicated, but Jane will pull all the threads together for us. Jane recently helped me out with our recent Six-Gun Justice speed lesson on one of the wild women of the West, Jane Street, who's the focus of Jane's latest book featuring The Girl Who Dared to Defy. Hello, friend. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I am good. That was a very long-winded uh, lead-in, <laughs> but I hope that was okay. <laughs> it was. It was fine. I'm trying to cover everything. <laughs> yes, I hope so. Good. So if we go back to the beginning, before you actually started putting words on paper for publication, you were a public school teacher for 30 years. I was. I taught senior English for 30 years. What did you take away from teaching senior English for 30 years? Besides the fact that teaching is like working dog years, <laughs> I actually was so envious of the way my students could write. I was very good at research, but oh my gosh, they could write with such creativity and imagery. And I couldn't do that. I was like straight nonfiction, almost encyclopedic. And I wanted to be like them. So I finally have worked through a process where I've gotten much, much better. I'm constantly trying to figure out how to tell a true story and make you think you're reading fiction. It's a true story with all the documentation, but you just don't want to put it down. To do nonfiction books like that's a real trick. It's a real art. It is an art. I was fascinated to see that you supervised the compilation of 15 volumes of the student publication, A History of Dripping You know, Springs. like I said, I love history. And you start with your local history and this little area outside of Austin, which is the central Texas hill country, the gateway. I wanted the kids to tell the story so they would appreciate their own history. And it ended up when I retired, the Texas state legislature actually passed a resolution honoring me because of working with those kids and doing these volumes of local history. They have them in the UT archives or in all the major libraries. And it took 15 years of the 19 years I was in Dripping Springs. But it's more than just what's in the archives. It's oh, yes, what yes. The effect that you've had on each and every one of those students oh. that they're going to take with them for the rest of their lives. Truly, that was what was important about doing that work. It was. I became the instructional facilitator and I would hire some of the kids that became teachers. And I loved working with them. Some of them are still actually students that I first taught who were probably three years younger than me are still friends with me. So, yeah, it's been fun. 
You were a Double Spur Award winner for your first nonfiction book, which was actually about one of your relatives, Frank Little and the IWW, The Blood That Stained an American Family. It also won a ton of other awards from Texas and from the Bancroft History Prize, all kinds of things. Did you have any idea that was going to be the result of writing this book? No, I didn't have any idea what was going to happen. This was my very first book. The whole idea, it was a blessing. I knew I was going to write this story, especially since my son had come to me with an AP American history prompt. It was a cartoon of a man that was being hanged and it said Frank Little and underneath it, it said traitor. There were two cartoon characters, one, a guy with a big hat on wearing a mask and he represented the Copper Trust and he was handing coins into the hand of the guy that was the media, the newspaper. And it just said, just tell them he's a traitor. If that was actually in his history prompt that he had to write for an AP English course, a DBQ document-based question, I knew that I had to tell Frank's story. The problem was my family was not talking about it. And I came to find out my parent, my father didn't even know the story because my grandparents and great-grandparents had kept it a secret. I thought it was because they were ashamed, but that was not the case. It was for protection. The Bureau of Investigation, there was the Red Scare, the first one in 1917, was unbelievable. You hear stories about people killing dachshunds because they're Germans. That really did happen in the country. People had bounties put on their heads if they had German surnames or if they spoke German in line while registering for the draft, they were arrested. It was a horrible time of Americans turning on Americans. So I found out exactly that's what happened. It was out of fear. It was to protect Frank and protect the family. And I didn't really know I had such a story. I researched it for years and then I finally wrote it. And I thought, I don't know who I'm going to go to. Who is going to publish this? I knew nothing about the business. I looked at the university presses to see who would be interested in labor history, mining history, women's history, military history, because that's all in that book. And the one that hit the spot was the University of Oklahoma Press. They were like the premier press for Western nonfiction. I had a snowball's chance in hell, basically, of getting it published. I looked at the different acquisitions editors, and each one was a specialty in one of those areas. But here was a book that had it all. I just happened to send an email to the editor-in-chief, who at that time was Charles Rankin. I told him what I had. He goes, no, you send it to me. He told me later he was not going to let the book get away. It turned out that he had been the editor-in-chief of the Montana Historical Quarterly for like more than a dozen years, maybe as much as 17 years before he went to the University of Oklahoma Press. And he knew Frank Little and he wanted the story. So it was a blessing. It just worked out fantastic. As a result, I have a friendship with him that has gone far beyond just the publishing of that first book. What's interesting is the political cartoon that started this all for you could have appeared in a paper last week just with a few names moved around. Yeah, it's history repeating itself right now, I'm afraid. And when Americans turn on Americans and start believing everything that you read or hear in the media, you don't have any discernment anymore. We're in trouble. And that's what happened then. The IWW, of which Frank was a member of the Industrial Workers of the World, they were radical and they were socialists, but they certainly were not taking any money from the Kaiser, from Wilhelm. They said that IWW stood for Imperial Wilhelm or I won't work or I want whiskey. They really (laughs) came up with the idea that these guys and women were actually in cahoots with the Germans for World War One. And they were not. They were against the war. That is a fact. They were against the war, but they certainly were not in cahoots with the Germans. 
get just propagated. When you have the big corporations that were making money off the war, we made money off the war. That's a fact. You always make money off war. Somebody does. They could not afford for us not to get into the war. Those corporations owned the newspapers. And there was a smear campaign about the IWW or anybody who thought differently. You can flip it. You can say, okay, those were socialists. And that was actually Democrats and Republicans who were against the IWW. You can flip that. Not one particular political party owns that type of action. You can have one group be just as bad at doing that as another. That's what's happening today. I'm sorry to say. And we talk about news. You've just got to really be careful when you read it. And you've got to watch what Big Brother is doing, too. And so, yes, it taught a lot of lessons. The FBI. This this was McCarthyism before McCarthyism in many ways. It was on steroids. What happened with McCarthyism later was horrible. But I will tell you, quite frankly, that at this time it was on steroids. You had men, minors who were IWW, who were found castrated. They died. They had castrated and been bled to death. You had people who were deported. You didn't have a legal system. Whereas with McCarthyism, at least they tried to put them through the courts. But there, people were just taking the law into their own hands. It was awful. A lot of innocent people were ruined and went to prison. In 1920, they were finally released. Most of them were. That was when they repealed the Sedition Act. The Sedition Act said that if you even criticized an American soldier's uniform or you said something negative about the draft, you said something negative about the war, you could be arrested for treason. So you think about that today and you think if people eavesdrop on us or tell us we can't have certain information, we're heading that same way. So we have to be really careful. It's a lot about censorship too, Paul, because the reason Frank was killed was to stifle his speech. For the corporations, his speeches were hate speech, so he was murdered. It was all about censorship, all the free speech fights that happened then with the workers standing on the street corners saying the Declaration of Independence and getting arrested. It was a lot about censorship, and that's another scary time for us right now. It is. You said that your parents didn't really know the story. It was your grandparents who knew it and had kept it hidden. How did you winkle this out of them? How did you get to the truth of this story? I found a second cousin. He's in his 80s. He knew quite a bit. And then I had letters from my great aunts. And then my grandfather was just a few years younger than Frank. Frank was the youngest son in the family. And my grandfather was the oldest son Frank was my great-grandfather's youngest brother. I found out there had been a killing in Drumright, Oklahoma. I was able to glean out from the family an agreement that had been made that if something had gone wrong in Drumright, where the rest of the family was living, trying to make money off the big oil boom there, that they were to not talk about it, not talk about Frank if something happened. And something did happen very bad. And that was the last time Frank saw the family was after this event in Drumright in Oklahoma. Then my great-grandfather was arrested anyway and thrown in jail because he was the brother of Frank Little, and he was just a farmer in Oklahoma. My other great-grandfather, who was Frank's brother, and had also been a minor and was an IWW, spent five months in jail. Ironically, he set up a deal, might have become a stool pigeon, and he got out. It's an interesting history in that part of the family, but it was never shame. They still don't. They don't trust the government. You'll hear that from them. They don't trust anything they hear. But that is the result of this time period. 
your family seems to be filled with these amazing characters. Tell us about your great grandmother who was running around in the Western mining camps. Well, this is also my dad's family, but it's on his maternal side. We had no idea what my great grandmother did. She was a Scandinavian, Danish, first-generation immigrant. She had only one child, and that was much later. It's real funny. In True West magazine, on the article on Billy the Kid, they talk about his mother, and they talk about the fact that she had been a prostitute and what happened when these Catholic girls in New York got pregnant, and they were finally of age. They didn't need to be prostitutes anymore. How they did not have abortions. They did not put their children up in orphanages, but they claimed they were widows, they would take the child and move someplace else and completely set back up. That is apparently what my great-grandmother did. She composed this fantastic story of how the father was a doctor who died on the Klondike, yet that never happened. My grandmother didn't even know who her father was. My great-grandmother, her name was Christine Beatrice Peterson. She ended up being able to marry another mining superintendent in Louisville as long as she had that story. He happened to have some children and needed a wife, so it just worked out. But yeah, she was traipsing around all over Colorado and South Dakota and Iowa and Washington. I've got a novel in mind already. I'm going to try one of these days. How did all of this lead you to Jane Street? When I was researching Frank Little, I came across in my research that he had helped a young woman named James Street organize a domestic workers union. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And what was unusual about it was nobody else was interested as far as the general executive board really of helping the women. They talked a good gang. And there were some strong women leaders like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. But Frank was the one who really went out of his way to try to help. And I just pigeonholed that. And then late, I found out that my grandmother, I had some old documents of hers. I'm the story keeper in the family. And so I have all the documents, all the letters, all the cards. And I had a bunch of cards from 1915, 1916. And come to find out, she had gone to work as a maid in a mansion in Boulder, Colorado, at the same time that Jane Street was organizing. And she had run away from an arranged marriage to a man twice her age to get into that mansion. And I saw that was a common story also for a lot of girls in the West. And it just piqued my interest. So I started researching Jane. And oh, that was fun research. And that led to the new book just released, Jane Street, The Girl Who Dared to Defy. Yes, The Rebel Maids of Denver. I couldn't figure out how she got to Denver, but the Ludlow Massacre had happened, and there was a lot of politicization of this event. It was a watershed, a labor event, and she came into Denver to basically get her revenge on these elite Denver housewives who had ugly things to say about the women and children who had died in the tent colony in Ludlow. This is an interesting part of Western history we don't really hear about. It's not big shoot-em-ups. It's not the sheep herders versus the ranchers and cattlemen. This is a different part of Western history that you seem to have made a niche for yourself. I have, but I want to branch out in other areas, too. I don't mind being in the niche, but I'm so interested in everything. And it's hard. Jane Street wasn't, you know, just about a housekeeper strike. It was about workers' rights and women's rights and unions and organizing. It was about the West. And I really love anything that has to do with the West. I like the women's stories, but they're hard to find. But I'm trying to do some other work, too, that's just a little bit different. Which is what you're doing with the book you're currently researching, <laughs> yeah. which is on Hank Bedeker. 
again, it's that family connection, but it has a great story. And I'm finding things about at a place that people don't know. I'm getting into documents that maybe some people have seen, maybe they haven't. Chuck Rankin reminded me that everybody has written about Butch Cassidy, and that's true. Of course, this book is not about Butch Cassidy, although part of it is Hank's relationship with Butch Cassidy. But of course, I'm having to overcome the notion that Cassidy was killed in Bolivia. That's a huge burden to carry. I may not be able to prove it. I just don't know. But if I can prove where Etta Place ended up and who she was, I've been given a name, then it's possible I might be able to have some other links. I don't know, but there's a whole bunch of tangents I'm having to research on this, plus read that entire library of all the books that have been written about Butch Cassidy and to tie that into Hank. The part that is so interesting that I have not been able to research this year because of COVID, I could not go to these places. Hank was an excellent marksman. He had learned it in Nebraska from his first wife's family. She had died. The story was when he came to Wyoming, he came as an undercover lawman. What was going on, of course, was the Johnson County War. So I'm trying to find out whose side he was on, what he was exactly doing. He worked as a stagecoach driver on the stage line from Buffalo to Crazy Woman's. I'm going to have to go to Buffalo and investigate that more. I know in his words what ranches he was working on, what outlaws showed up to those ranches. And like many of the lawmen, they walk a tightrope between the law and the outlaws. He was never an outlaw, but he had outlaw friends. The story was that Butch even asked for him to be one of the escorts when Butch was taken to Laramie. This is quite a story. I'm excited to tell it, but again, I'm hoping that someone wants to read about an old white guy. I really don't know because things have changed so much if this is going to be even a book that someone's going to want. If you bring new information to the table, people are going to want to read it because it's such an iconic story. I hope so. I really do. And again, I'm trying to pull those threads like on Etta and other things like that. I like to get family documents and get first-person narratives and oral histories to tie in. I never go off of what somebody else has said. I'm not being arrogant on that. I will use it to be my signposts along the way. But I have got to look at that original research before I'll accept it and build on it. You can get burned really badly if you build it on something that actually has been disproved. It's taking me a while because of COVID. I will be back in Laramie in November. I have a speaking engagement in Steamboat Springs on Jane Street in November, and I'm hoping I can just pop across the state line and there not be five feet of snow and I can get to the American Heritage Center and do some more work. Let's talk about something that I find fascinating as much as I find your other books fascinating, but this one doesn't have a whole lot to do with the West, and that is <laughs> a memoir, the pink dress memoir of a guy Rex girl. Yeah, the you got to tell me about yeah. this. All right. It is Western in a way because it is a story that centers around El Paso, and El Paso, Texas was a Wild West town for a long time. Even today, the attitudes are very different than every place else. There are a lot of lawbreakers who moved there. And they moved there because it was easier to either escape or break laws. It just was. It just had different attitudes there. Let's start with who or what a Gyrex girl is. All right. I was the first Gyrex girl. The actual term became copyrighted in the 1980s. 
I was the first Guy Rex girl. That is, I was the first product of Richard Guy and Rex Holt, who became the beauty queen makers. Originally, it was with the Miss America pageant and the Miss USA. And then it went on to be just the USA because of some bad blood and hard knocks lessons that Guy and Rex, that's what they went by, learned along the way. But they also did not know how to do a beauty contestant. And so I was the guinea pig. And it was not easy. The people that they worked with who became my support group were some of the people that lived on the edge that I was just talking about. I was exposed to a lot of interesting people, a lot of things. One of the sponsors for the Guy Ricks pageant was Jimmy Chagrin, who hired the assassin for Judge John Wood, a federal judge who was murdered. It was big news across the country. And Woody Harrelson's father was the assassin. And Jimmy Chagra was the one who hired him because he was the drug kingpin. And he was one of the sponsors. You can't make this stuff up. I have all these interesting characters in there that tie in. Sam Peckinpah comes into town to do the getaway. Believe it or not, he's going to be connected to some of this. The Jay Arms, who is the private detective who actually rescued Marlon Brando's son out of Mexico, made big news in the 1972-73 And then he got a reoccurring role on Magnum P.I. He had hooks for his hands. They actually did a Mattel action figure on him. He was one of the people that was supportive. His daughter was actually one of the contestants originally. There's just a lot of interesting people. And once again, it's that thread of lawlessness and Wild West that runs through this. And that made the Miss El Paso pageant totally different from the stodgy people who had the Miss Texas, Miss America pageant. Because of my performance, Guy and Rex were actually asked to be on the board for the Miss Texas for Miss America, which they did for four years until they found out there were some things that made it rigged. That's a whole nother episode. Then they took over just the Miss Texas USA, which I was also in. It was quite different. After that, it was just five years later that they had a Miss USA. They had a Miss Texas who won Miss USA, and that was Kim Tomes. A few years later, they had five back-to-back Miss USAs. And that's just in such a short amount of time. But boy, did they learn. They did it like a Las Vegas show. Their pageants were just like Las Vegas. No one did anything like them. And they flaunted the El Paso theme. They flaunted the Texas as we were Western. So that the girls would be dressed in these slick one-piece outfits with holsters and spurs and the gloves, everything, the gauntlets. They put on a show. In the end, they became very famous. They ended up owning the Miss California pageant, the Miss Texas pageant. They had all this Miss USA's. Donald Trump had been courting them. He had not bought the Miss USA pageant yet, but he had been courting them. But another business came in the meantime. They were so jealous, could not believe that anybody could have consecutive winners like this. And they basically took the pageant away from them. It was quite a ride. But my story is the two years with them and also what was going on with my parents and my family. And my father had also walked the line on a lot of things and uh, how it all fell together. Yeah. And that was my COVID book. And I think I've like four chapters and I'm done. It sounds like a reality show in the making. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, there's a guy here in Texas who just contacted me and they're working on a musical called the Texas Aces. That's what they called the five Miss USA, the Texas Aces. And they're actually working on a musical. 
Guy and Rex. They taught dance right next door to the saloon where John Wesley Harden was shot. They were dance instructors and then they did floats. They were partners, okay? So all the highfalutin women just thought they were so cool and called them the boys. And then they started decorating for them and making evening gowns. And then this pageant came up in 1970 that was just cheap. It was Miss America, Miss El Paso, and it was just a cheap pageant. So they bought it on a whim. And there we went. It did pay for my college. I won state talent at piano. All my college was paid. I would say, except for one job, every job I ever got was because of my being in the Miss America contest. Really, it had a huge effect on your life going forward. I was involved with them off and on for 10 years. It had a huge impact on my life. Everybody is dead. Phyllis George died last summer. Guy died last year. Rex a few years before that. I think Jay Arms is the only one who is still alive. Everybody else is gone. But yeah, it had a huge impact. And I'm trying to tell this story as best as I can. Well, I want to be in the front line for (laughs) an advanced reader's copy for that. Oh, I'll take you up on that, Paul. (laughs) Thanks, Jane. I appreciate you being with me today. Best of luck with all of the work that you're doing. And I hope your new book, Jane Street, The Girl Who Dared Defy, goes a long way for you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com. For information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and keep reading Westerns. Adios! We're out of here. Let's ride.